We're going to be in Revelation chapter 11 this morning. Uh, what I've suggested to you is that as you try to look at this book, that rather than sing it in a linear fashion, which makes it uh, really interesting but sometimes really hard to understand, that rather you see it as layers, that you see the units of it as, as a complete picture, a picture of almost, let's just say that there are little sections in the book that, that run from this point all the way it looks like to the end, and then you'll find another section that does the same thing. It, it runs to the end, and so that you're having, I presented it to you last week like one of those picture books that I had when I was a kid, one of those science books that had pictures of the human body had the skeleton and then a transparency layer that had the organs in the, um, of the body and then another transparency layer that laid over that the, the muscles and ligaments and then another transparency layer that laid over that the, the skin and you had then one complete picture. But each picture was a part, but it took all the pictures together to make a complete picture. So sometimes it's important that you not get lost in the details but that you see the big picture. And in this 11th chapter, the big picture is so important because it is the conclusion of the chapter that begins, or the, of the unit of material that begins with the, se the seven trumpets, the seven angels who have the seven trumpets. Now, uh, as we look at this, I'm going to show you some individual parts of the story uh, that will hope, hopefully help you see uh, what I'm presenting today. And I've, in, I've determined to entitle the 11th chapter overall, The Passion of the Church. The Passion of the Church. And the reason I give it that title is because uh, it presents uh, the church and its witness extinguished, uh, at least the witness of, of the, the witness of two individuals extinguished. Uh, and so you'll You'll hopefully see that. And by the passion of the church, I'm not talking about uh, the enthusiasm of the church. I'm not talking about the energy of the church. Uh, I'm not talking about uh, the, the ambition of the church. I'm talking about the suffering of the church. You might remember the movie, The Passion of the Christ. That was the suffering, the crucifixion of Jesus. Well, when I talk about the passion of the church, I'm talking about the suffering of the church as it's presented, and hopefully you'll see it here as I lay it out. And so uh, some people believe, and there's a prevailing mood among many of teachers today, is that the church is not going to endure any tribulation or suffering. It's appalling for some of us to think that the, of the church passing through such a time, and yet Jesus told us over and over, and the New Testament writers prepared us for such. For instance, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, Paul said, For it has been granted you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. That's Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Do you know which book in the New Testament speaks more about suffering than any other book in the Bible? It's really not the book of Revelation. It's the little book of 1 Peter. Uh, it has, it's mentioned suffering 16 different times. I'm talking about the New Testament. I'm not comparing that to the Old Testament book of Job, but Peter mentions suffering 16 different times. He says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow 
in his steps. And then in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 21, Peter said, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect and strengthen and establish you. So suffering is only mentioned once in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 10, where, where uh, John, uh, Jesus, speaking to the church at Smyrna, tells them, do not fear what you are about to suffer. And they were about to suffer. He said, behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Now, although it's only mentioned once, it's pictured over and over again in the book. As a matter of fact, in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, there's a picture of the saints, uh, of the souls under the altar in heaven. And the souls under the altar cry out to God, and they say, how long will it be before you avenge our blood that has been shed by those who dwell on the earth? And this is the Lord's answer to them in verse 11. He said, each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until, until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. In chapter 7, there is a great multitude that John sees in heaven. They have on white robes. And uh, John is asked who they are. He said, I don't have a clue. And John is told, these are they who've come out of the great tribulation. They've come out of the great tribulation by means of suffering. And they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ. Keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. And Jesus then, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus laid it out for us. He said in chapter 9, verses 22 through 24, he said of himself, he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And he was saying this to them all. He says it to you. He says it to me. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever, wishes, uh, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And then in John chapter 16, Jesus said, All this I have said to you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things to you because they have not known the Father or me. So how is it that we miss these verses and uh, that refer and think that they refer to Christians of another age? So we go over three things that we learned last week. These are the major truths in the book of Revelation anyway. 
The first one is that the greatest danger in the book of Revelation is the impending wrath of God. That's the greatest danger. Second, the greatest need in the book of Revelation is to be protected or to be delivered from the wrath of God. And the Bible tells us clearly, we read a passage out of Thessalonians where Paul said, Jesus is the only one who can deliver us from the wrath to come. And so, number three, only those who are, the only ones who are delivered are those who worship Jesus, who enter through into the Holy of Holies by means of the blood of Jesus. Only those who've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And so last week, we launched our journey into chapter 11 and just looked at the first two verses. And uh, we'll look at those verses again today and show you how that these people are sealed and measured for protection. But as we said, they're not, me- they're not protected. God's people are never protected from suffering. They are not protected from sickness. They are not protected from sorrow. They are not protected from death. We know that by experience. But we are protected from the wrath of God. We are sealed. We are protected from that. We are sheltered from that. And we'll be delivered from that. Now let me show you the picture, uh, the pieces of this picture, as we open the book and read the first three verses of Revelation chapter 11. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told to rise and measure the temple of God. Remember last week we said the Greek word here, and it's important that we identify this because it is the word used in every occasion for for the temple in the book of Revelation. It is the word naos, and it means sanctuary. And the sanctuary was always a reference to one area in the temple, and that was the area where the holy place was and the holy of holies was. And no one worshipped in the holy place or the holy of holies. Only the priest could go into the holy place, only the high priest into the holy of holies. So it was a very specific place that was told to be measured. By the way, for those of you who are interested In a moment, we're going to read a passage about the beast or the Antichrist, and we're just going to touch on that today. But in Thessalonians, Paul says, 2 Thessalonians, that a day will come when uh, the man of sin, the man of lawlessness, will will stand in the temple, but it uses exactly the same word, the naos, the holy place, the holy of holies, and declare himself to be God. So it's interesting that this word is used. So the, the part that was measured was not the whole temple, but only those who worship in this specific place. All I'm telling you is that these little details may give us clues into what John is saying, and it's the clues that we need to look for. I'll show you another one here as we continue to read. He says, Do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, the first question that I want to answer this morning about this little passage of Scripture is, what is the holy city? That's very important for us to understand. I don't know that we really know. I'm just going to tell you that. Now, you assume that it's Jerusalem. You assume that. You make that assumption. Well, I want to tell you that in the book of Revelation from 
from the end of chapter 3, where you have the seven churches and the seven cities where they were, Ephesus, Smyrna, Laodicea, Pergamum, Thyatira, and so forth, from that point forward, there are only two cities mentioned in the book of Revelation. Only two. Only two. The holy city and the great city. Only two. That's very important. And so you see here, the holy city, as mentioned, will be trampled for 42 months. But if you look ahead just a minute to chapter 8, uh, to, to verse 8, if you look at verse 8, you'll notice that uh, there is a mention of the place where Jesus was crucified. Well, you would assume that would be Jerusalem. And you would assume it would be, but it's, called the, it's not called Jerusalem, it's called the great city. You'll notice two cities, the holy city, and then at verse 8, the great city, but the great city is symbolically called Sodom or Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. So I would ask you, how can the holy city at once be Sodom and Egypt? Well, that's a question that needs to be answered. Well, elsewhere in the book of Revelation, the great city is called Babylon. Uh, and it's called Babylon because Babylon is that city that was organized. All oh, We go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, to Babel. You remember Babel? That was the beginning of the kingdom of Babylon. That's what we go back to. So we have, we have any city, any city organized in opposition to God and under the power of the enemy is the great city, whether it's Babylon uh, organized against God or it's Washington, D.C., organized against God or it's Beijing organized against God or Jerusalem organized against God and under the power of the enemy it's the great city in contrast to the holy city. Now the question many have here is, is this, if this is Jerusalem where the Lord was crucified is here called Sodom and Egypt what is the holy city that is trampled? Well let me tell you two places this is important and it's a good picture it's a wonderful picture if you just take time to see it the holy city's in two places in the book of Revelation. It's here. It's only here, by the way, trampled. And in the end of the book, in the end of the book, the holy city is called the New Jerusalem. And it is coming down out of heaven from God like a bride adorned for her husband. And so let me just show you the contrast and I'll let you decide. Here you have the holy city trampled. And at the end of the book, you have the holy city triumphant. It's a picture. See the picture. Celebrate the picture. What does the picture mean? Some people say the holy city here is a picture of the church trampled. And the holy city coming down like a bride adorned for her husband is the picture of the church triumphant. We're introduced here to the passion of the church What's the time frame? Well, however you measure, Daniel uses this same time frame in chapter 7, verses 22 through 24, where he talks about this evil figure who's going to wear out the saints. He's going to persecute the saints of the Most High for three and a half years. And this is that period of tribulation that we talk about. It's a seven-year period. This is part of it. Which part of it, we're not quite sure. But here we see the... the, the we see next two witnesses. Let's talk about the two witnesses. Now remember, we're looking at pictures. The pictures tell the story, but don't get lost in the details. See the big picture. 
who are the who are the witnesses? Well, we always say, I've tried to tell you, is what you do with the book of Revelation is you let the book of Revelation interpret the book of Revelation. Don't interpret it yourself. Give it time and it will interpret itself for you. Who, what does the Bible say the two witnesses are? It says they are lampstands. And who have lampstands been before this moment in, in the book of Revelation? The lampstands were the churches. Now these may just be representatives of the churches, they may represent churches. Some say they represent the only two churches in the book of Revelation that didn't receive a condemnation. That's the church at Philadelphia and the church at Smyrna. So that's just one of those possibilities. Also, I told you last week that there's a similarity in this chapter, chapter 11, between, between this chapter and the book of Zechariah, chapter 2, where where Jerusalem is measured for protection and God says, I'll be a wall of fire about her. That's chapter 2. In chapter 4, in chapter 4, we see two people who, are, who, who, who make up one lampstand and two olive trees, just like we have here in this passage of Scripture. Let me read you chapter 4 of Zechariah and let you listen. Then the angel who talked with me returned and woke me up like someone awakened from sleep. He asked me, what do you see? And I answered, remember, here's another prophet, another man in the Bible seeing pictures. And he said, I see a golden lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps. Also, there are two olive trees by it. One on the right of the bowl, the other's on the left. I asked the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? He said, Do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. So he said to me, and then he's going he's to answer and explain what this means, what this is a picture of. What are these two olive trees? What are these, what are these, what are these things that are draw What is this lamp that's drawing oil from these olive trees? What does this mean? Well, what this is in the, in the book of Zechariah, is this is a reference to two individuals, two guys who were serving the Lord, rebuilding the temple. That was their assignment. Their names were Zerubbabel and Joshua. Zerubbabel was the governor. He was the political leader. Joshua was the high priest. They were just doing God's work, just like you and me, teaching Sunday school, preaching, leading the music, just doing God's work. And God had given them this extraordinarily difficult task, the task of rebuilding the temple. And it was beyond impossible as far as they were concerned. It was something they would never be able to do on their own. And God was reminding them, yes, you're right. You can't do this in your own strength. And so here's the message. This is the verse that you've heard before. Here it is. This is the picture in the book of Zechariah, and this is part of the picture in the book of Revelation. So, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And he goes on to explain, Zerubbabel has this impossible, immovable mountain standing in front of him, but the mountain will be moved by God's power. And so everything that needs to be done will be done. And then in verse 11, then I asked the angel, what of these two olive trees on the right and left of the lampstand? Again, I asked him, what are these two olive branches that, that are beside the two gold pipes that pour out the golden oil? He said, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I said. So he said, these are the two anointed ones 
to serve the Lord of all the earth. And that was just a picture of the two people serving God. So to summarize this passage in the Old Testament and to look at it in terms of this passage in the New Testament, these are two ordinary people. These are not supernatural people. These are not people that come down from heaven to do God's bidding. These are two ordinary people facing an insurmountable set challenge, a challenge that can only be accomplished by supernatural power. They are ordinary men enabled with extraordinary power by God. And so what you have here is these two lampstands, call them witnesses, but they're not supernatural. They're just serving God, witnessing for God. And you notice as you continue to read, their Lord was crucified. So who are they? They are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. They are preaching the gospel. They're giving out the gospel message. Well, let's look at verse 5, if we might. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So let's ask a question now. What are what of these powers that are theirs? First, what are the fire that flows from their mouths and kills their enemies? Well, their power... Is this literal fire or is this some picture that God is giving us? Is God giving us a message here? Well, let me read you some scripture. Let me, let me remind you of what happened on the day of Pentecost. When the Spirit came on at Pentecost, what did they see? What did everybody see that day? The Bible says there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And what did those tongues of fire represent? The tongues of fire represented the power of the Holy Spirit. And what were they enabled to do? They were able to witness mightily. Jeremiah, I'm, I'm sorry, Isaiah prayed in Isaiah chapter 64, verses 1 and 2. He prayed for an extraordinary move of God. And he said, Oh God, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. In Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 14, God spoke to Jeremiah and said, Because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth fire and this people as wood, and it will consume them. Jeremiah said in chapter 20, verse 9, If I say I will not remember him or speak any more in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary of holding it in, and I cannot endure it. In Jeremiah 23, verse 29, the Lord said, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock? Well, this could be literal fire. Yes, it could be. Or it just could be the powerful witness of these people irresistibly reaching their adversaries, working mightily. Verse, we read the rest of the verse. If anyone harm them, this is how he's doomed to be killed. Could be the fire or it could be verse 6. 
They have the power to shut the sky so that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now, let me remind you, let me just say to you that this speaks more to the power of their prayers than anything else. You remember Elijah? Elijah, who James said, and we read it in the Old Testament, we also read it in the New Testament in the book of James. The Bible says that Elijah prayed that it might not rain, and it did not rain on the earth. And how long did it not rain? Interesting amount of time. 1,260 days. It didn't rain for 42 months. It didn't rain for three and a half years because Elijah prayed and God shut the heavens. And Elijah prayed again and it rained. That's what we have here. It's a picture. Moses Turn the water into blood. But did Moses turn the water into blood or did Moses act in obedience to God and God turned the water into blood? Was Moses communicating with God and God was acting in behalf of Moses and his people to provide need, the needs of his people in an extraordinary fashion? This is the picture we have here. And then we need to read verse 7. And I want, to read, I want you to look at verse 7 carefully. Revelation chapter 11. Verse 7, I don't have it written down in my notes, but so I want to read it and make sure I get it right. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss or the bottomless pit will make war with them and overcome them and killed them, these two witnesses, these two witnesses. Now, what about this beast? Well, we're told something here that we're not told back in chapter 8. Cha well, uh, well, and that is when chapter 8, the bottomless pit is opened. The demons come out of the bottomless pit. All sorts of bad things happen. But we're not told about the beast who comes up out of the bottomless pit. This indicates that he is a supernatural entity and not just an ordinary man. He has a supernatural origin. He has supernatural powers. And he is supported by a supernatural evil. And his entire focus will be to extinguish the witness of these lampstands. If you want to limit that to just two individuals, two witnesses, that's fine. But I think you'll miss the great picture about to be presented here. Remember, I'm presenting this to you as the passion of the church, the suffering of the church in the last days at the hands of this one called the beast who Daniel said would wear out the saints. And I remind you that you need to consider chapters 8 through 11 as one complete picture. It's a picture of the march toward the end from one perspective. And so what happens as a result of the beast hatred of these lampstands? The Bible says... He will make war on them and he will conquer them and he will kill them. Now earlier I read you a series of verses related to the suffering of the church. We think how could God ever allow such thing to happen? But here it happens. And we shouldn't be surprised because God told us all along that it would happen. 
I remind you of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Peter said, Be sober and be vigilant, because your adversary, your adversary, the devil, roams about, seeking whom he may devour. Devour. That's what he wants to do, to devour. So when you and I are tempted and we fall to temptation, we think we've been devoured. No, we've not been devoured. We've only been bitten or maybe sifted uh, or something. Caused to fall but not devoured. If you want to see a picture of devouring, all you have to do is open the next unit of material, which is in chapter 12. And in chapter 12, in those first uh, verses 3 and 4, there's a sign that appeared in heaven in a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. On his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of the heaven and cast them down the earth. And the dragon is a picture. It's a picture of the devil. He stands before the woman who's about to give birth so that when, he give, when she gives birth to her child, he might devour it. This is a picture of what the devil has always wanted to do to God's people and God's purpose. That is his intent to devour God's people and God's purpose. He even tried to devour Jesus, did he not? He tried to devour Jesus before he was born. He tried to devour Jesus when he was born. He tried to devour Jesus on the cross. He will devour the lampstands. He devours the lampstands. And so we see in verse 8, And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presence because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Why is the world happy that the witnesses are dead? Well, a watching world is, is happy because their witness is extinguished. Their sermons are no longer delivered. The guilt that they feel, the, the conviction of sin that they felt when those people were preaching to them is no longer there. And their influence is gone. So they let their bodies lie and rot in the street. They leave them there as an example for the rest of the world. They leave them there for one day and, and then two days and then three days and then on the fourth day, somewhere along about the middle of the fourth day, when those bodies got about like the body of Lazarus in the tomb who'd been in the tomb for four days and, 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 and Martha said, we can't roll away the stone because he's oozy. That's the Greek word that uses that means he stinketh. The Greek word is literally he's oozy. He paints the picture and we can't open it up. And when they get in about that state, something unusual happens. Verse 11. But after the three and a half days, and before I read the rest of it, I don't want you to get lost in the details. I don't want you to get lost in the details of what I just read. I don't want you to get lost in the details of what I'm about to read. I want you to see the picture. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, 
And great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God. Now we've come to the end of the unit, the unit of the seven trumpets. We're waiting for the seventh trumpet to blow. And here we see the ascension, the resurrection, and the ascension of these witnesses. What is this? Well, in one way, this is the end. This is the end. This is the end of everything. You remember when we got to the end of the six seals, of the seven seals, when the sixth seal was broken, the sky split apart like a scroll, and all the stars fell from the sky, and all the mountains and, and, and landmarks were moved from their place. And the kings of the earth and the great men said, Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Fall, they said, cried to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of His wrath is coming. Who is able to stand? And we thought it was the end, but it was not the end. There was more to come. So we come to the end of another unit. It looks like the resurrection of the dead and the rapture of the church to some degree. That might not be what it is but we're waiting for the final trumpet to blow. What did Paul say would happen at the final trumpet? He said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Is that what we read about here? Well, I can imagine the people hearing this for the first time, the church hearing this for the first time. So stand on tiptoe with them, those who heard it, as if you've never heard it before. Wait for the end of the story as it appears in this layer. And this is just one layer telling the story, the complete story, but it's just part of it. Verse 15. We've been waiting for some time for the seventh angel to blow his trumpet. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. By the way, let me just point out something. Whenever you read that expression, there's a threefold expression. Who is, who was, who is to come. Is to come is missing here. We worship you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for, the destroying, for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of the covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning. You'll remember at the end of every one of these sections, Flashes of lightnings, rumblings, peals of thunder, earthquakes, 
unusual events, saying there's more to come, there's more to the story. But with these verses, the seven trumpet layer of the book is closed, and chapter 12 starts another layer, another story, and another series of sevens. Every time we learn a little more, but here's the message. The greatest danger in the book of Revelation is the impending wrath of God. The greatest need in the book of Revelation is to be protected from the wrath of God. The only ones protected from the wrath of God are those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We are told that over and over and over Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? We sing that song, and that's why we sing it. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Let's pray.